Hey everybody, my name is Bailey Cooper and I am an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety day is January 9th, 2009. I have a sponsor. I talked to him today. Um, and Bolden's my home group. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to do anything uh, when asked for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a little nervous because it's been five years since anybody's asked me to speak in an AA meeting and uh, um, I'm, I'm just grateful. My ego loves it. My ego is, is all about um, being the center of attention. Um, when I woke up this morning and I read the Daily Reflection, it really hit me and I kind of want to read it because it's, um, it's some good stuff. It's called A New Direction. Uh, our, our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. I hear talk of the weak-willed alcoholic, but I am one of the strongest-willed people on earth. I know now that my incredible strength of will is not enough to save my life. My problem is not one of weakness, but rather of direction. When I, without falsely diminishing myself, accept my honest limitations and turn to God's guidance, my worst faults become my greatest assets. My strong will, rightly directed, keeps me working until the promises of the program become my daily reality. And, um, yeah, I love that. It, it really speaks to me where I'm at in my sobriety today. Um, I, I just, I just want to um, congratulate uh, those in their first 30 days. Um, Bob, Alan, Tripp, I think I got everybody. It's, uh, it's an absolute miracle that... Um, that you're here, and and this is the reason that we're here is is for the newcomer. And I remember when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous um, on my tenth go round um, at 25 years old, I felt ashamed, I felt unlovable, I felt broken, and um, I just wanted to be accepted. And um, and I don't know, I don't ever want to forget that feeling. Um, after, after getting that desire chip and, and not feeling judged and, and feeling the love of Alcoholics Anonymous welcoming me back. And, um, and it really motivated me to get active and to jump into this thing with both feet. Um, I have an interesting childhood. Uh, I, was, I was adopted at birth. Uh, I later found out um, about eight years ago that my biological mother was addicted to heroin. And she, uh, she was in a, a long-term treatment facility, and uh, the same uh, priest that lined up the adoption for my sister convinced um, uh, my uh, father and mother to adopt me, and they were separated um, at the time, and um, it actually saved their marriage. And um, uh, I'll get into that later, but um, in between their separation, I have a brother that I also found out about 11 years ago. Um, so my, uh, my childhood, I didn't really know a lot about, um, I was different from, I was like the black sheep of my family. Um, you know, I was really the only one that was diagnosed with ADD in, in elementary school. Um, I always struggled in school. I was, uh, I was always seeking attention and approval doing whatever I could. Um, I, 
I had my first drink probably in third grade. We found a beer and we chugged it. Um, and um, but I had a really, really, a lot of really good memories of like childhood. You know, up to fifth grade. I, I remember my mom was always there. Yeah, I got a lot of love, and um, I was active in sports, and and um, I I had good friends, and we played in the woods, and. Um, and like a bomb in fifth grade, um, my mom was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, and she died within a year. And um, and it was really it was really hard. And and I reacted um, as if everything was okay. I I played the enabler in my family and uh, the rescuer. I acted as if um, you know uh, you know I was okay on the outside, and then I would go in the closet. Um, and I would cry, and I, I cried myself to sleep for several years, but I would never let you see me cry. I would always put on this front, like everything's okay. And um, it was hard, but alcohol was there. Um, before she died, she died in February, and that Thanksgiving, um, I got introduced to corn liquor moonshine, and um, it was great. It was, it was, um, it's it's funny. I was listening to a speaker tape, um, Sandy Beach, and he said that um, there's two types of people. Um, there's people that alcohol um, enhances who they are, and then there's people that alcohol saves them. And uh, I feel like alcohol saved me. Like, um, you know, it was what I was waiting for my whole life, and then it actually made me feel like I was something. And... Um, and I blacked out that Thanksgiving. I don't remember it. I didn't eat dinner. I, I think I passed out in front of the Nintendo. And there were zero consequences. And um, at Christmas again, um, they let me sip mixed drinks, and, and I got really warm and fuzzy. And, and I remember uh, that sense of ease and comfort. And um, after the death of my mom, it, it just um, it spiraled um, to uh, this this loneliness and depression. Uh, Bill Wilson talks about the hideous four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And, um, and I experienced that. I, I was bullied. Um, I was, uh, you know, I had, I guess, mommy issues. Um, it's funny. Every girl that I went out with from sixth grade into 11th grade dumped me. So I, I always had, um, a really low self-esteem issues about relationships. Um, but at an early age, I was this, you know, I would try and um, hold on to anything. You know, I would just dominate friendships and relationships um, and try and suck everything that I could out of it. And it caused, you know, uh, issues later in life. But when I got introduced to, uh, my sister threw a house party and my dad was out of town and, um, her friends just wanted to get me um, as messed up as possible. And um, it was probably the first time I ever got high, but um, they forced me to hold it in and it was, it was really good. And, and then they dropped me back off at this basketball game that my friends were at. And um, I just remember I felt like, you know, I was the center of the universe. You know, I would steal the ball and then shoot it the other way at half court and, and laugh about it. And, and there wasn't a lot of consequences for my drinking. It was kind of like um, my family looked at I was 
I was reacting to the death of my mother. Um, I was just acting out and that it was a phase. Um, but I wanted to get um, drunk and high at any chance that I could. Um, it, it escalated, you know, I would, um, I would break into people's houses. Um, I would steal cars. I would throw um, really crazy house parties. And, and on the inside, I just wanted you to like me. And I would do whatever it took. Um, but realistically, I couldn't control the amount of alcohol that I drank or the amount of drugs that it took once I started. And, and this behavior, this balancing act, um, I went to therapy from sixth grade until 12th grade. And, and I had the same therapist. And um, I don't think he knew anything about alcoholism because the issue never came up. It was never talked about. It was always uh, like I was maladjusted to life or it was my ADD or maybe some psychological issue. But on the inside, I knew that it was the drugs and the alcohol. It's just I was dishonest about it. I would never tell the whole story. I would always just say that I was making bad, that it was the people that I was hanging out with, that that was the problem. And that was the story that I believed for the longest time, that um, it was their fault. And um, my senior year of high school, um, I, was, I was making more money than my parents. Um, I, had, um, I had a really good hookup um, with an unlimited supply of weed, and um, I got arrested. And it was very humiliating. And um, it's like I saw that like this opportunity that I had in front of me in my life was closing shut really fast. And for some reason, I got out with minimal consequences. Um, and uh, the sentence was for me to go to the military. Um, all I had to do was enlist in the military and do some community service. And I was this scared little kid um, you know, this, this 18, 19 year old kid, um, who didn't know how to live life sober. And it was an absolute train wreck in the military. Um, the girl that I was dating, we were engaged and she got pregnant while I was away. And, um, and my master sergeant read that letter to the, the, the group of guys that I was with. And, um, and I freaked out and I hit him and uh, they discharged me. Um, they gave me, it wasn't a dishonorable, it was as if I had never served. It's called an entry level separation. But um, this was something that was very difficult for me to share for a number of years, even into sobriety. This was, I had a lot of shame um, that I felt I was inadequate, that I was not good enough, that I was incapable um, of any type of success. Um, but mind you, I was the only person in my entire family that ever enlisted in the military. And, you know, we were at war. So there's a lot of things that I could have been positive about, but I just looked at it as I was a failure, that I wasn't good enough. And I came home and uh, I, I drank every single day. Um, and I wasn't working, so you gotta have money to, to get drunk and high all the time. And I stole from my family. And, um, and then my family did an intervention and they had a police officer at that intervention. And they said that, um, 
you know, there's, there's enough to put me in prison for 20 years. Um, or they could kick me out. And I ended up being homeless for nine months. And nowhere in there was there any, you might have a drinking or a drug using problem. It was, um, you're messed up and we don't know what to do with you. Um, so while I was living on the run, um, I, I, I had kind of a cool story. I, I took this um, job across the country I found on, on Craigslist and um, I learned how to do door to door and um, and then I came back home and, and I did day labor and um, and I was living in my car at the CVS and I would do day labor and I'd make 50 to $75 a day and I would have no money at the end of the night and um, and I just remember those um, that shameful walk over to the 7-Eleven next to it um, in Richmond, Virginia on Broad Street. Um, it's kind of the ghetto. You got this, uh, this gas station, the CVS, and this day labor, and that's where a lot of homeless people hang out in that area. And um, I just parked in that parking lot, and um, sometimes a friend would let me couch surf. Uh, but I remember not having, barely having enough money um, to get beanie weenies or a hot dog. And a lot of days, that was the only thing that I ate because I would spend all of my money on drugs and alcohol. Um, eventually, I was arrested. Um, and I don't know why I didn't get a DUI, um, but I, I was tanked and I was going fishing. And um, the police officers found some paraphernalia in my car and they wrote me a ticket. And um, they confiscated my beer and they let me go. And um, so I was sentenced to Alcoholics Anonymous from that. And it was a really embarrassing thing because the police officers didn't show up at court. And I didn't know who they were or what they looked like, so I just pled guilty. And um, <laughs> the judge laughed at me and was like, okay. <laughs> and, and then told me after, afterwards that, you know, that sucks for you. And, um, and that's how I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I was 20, 20 years old. It was the day before my 21st birthday. And I went to my first meeting. And um, this guy, Jerry, um, he was this Vietnam vet with no legs. Um, he 12-stepped me after the meeting. He bought me my first big book. He pointed in there. Um, the alcoholic test and and he tried to qualify me he said um, you know do you identify as an alcoholic and and I said I don't know he's like well why don't you try and go to the bar and do some controlled drinking see if you can go to the bar and drink one drink and I'm like well tomorrow's my birthday he's like see if you can have one drink and walk away and next time you get get your paper signed come back to me and, and tell me how it, it, it ended up and um, all of my friends bailed on me, and it was me alone at this bar, and it was this shithole bar. And I ordered uh, one drink with five shots in it. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was $5 blue motorcycle night at whatever this bar was. And, um, and I drank five of them within an hour, and um, they caught me puking in the bathroom, and they kicked me out. 
And um, all I know is I woke up on the floor of my bedroom. My car was in my neighbor's yard. I was covered in puke. And I overslept for work and lost my job. And um, that experience sobered me up for a bit. And um, so I was going to meetings, getting my paper signed. And, um, but I could not stop smoking pot. Like, I was going to AA meetings, and I was using other people's urine to pass my drug test. Um, I'm not going to tell you how, just in case you need that idea. But um, I was only fooling myself, you know. Um, and, but I was afraid to drink because I didn't, I didn't know. Um, I didn't want it to get worse. And I was hearing, uh, I got sober in this place called the Rebos Club, which was a bunch of really low-bottom drunks, a lot of Vietnam vets. Um, it was a smoking clubhouse. It was pretty, it was pretty dirty and, and nasty. And um, but I went to I went to a lot of meetings there, and um, I was working the steps with a sponsor, and um, I got arrested again, and um, my sponsor bailed me out of jail, and um, um, this was this was the experience where um, I was um, my parents wouldn't let me back in the house. I was living with them, and um, so I was couch surfing, and uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to to do LSD and then go to a 7:30 morning meeting to check in with my sponsor, um, who had just bailed me out of jail. Um, and uh, yeah, I you know I saw Satan, and uh, you know he told me that I was going to die. And <laughs> it was a uh, there was a fan in the room, and it turned into a tornado, and. Um, I got sober like a few days after that. It was, it was an awakening experience. And um, I jumped into Alcoholics Anonymous with both feet. Um, Young People AA saved my life. Um, I got active in the Virginia State Conference of Young People in AA. And I got on a host committee and then the advisory committee. And I would go to Ikipa. And um, a good friend of mine moved to Louisville. And I would go meet up with them. We would, we would go to different conferences. Um, and life was good. And I, I really want to touch on, um, you know, to me, alcoholism um, is, uh, is what happens when I'm not drinking. Um, you know, I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontented. Um, I have, um, you know, the I self in me, the ick in the alcoholic. And if, if, you're, if you're in a place to where you're miserable and you're sober, good, you're in the right place. Um, going to more meetings is not going to make that go away. Um, rigorous honesty in the steps is what takes care of that. And at three years sober, my behavior was not sober behavior. Um, I was steal- I was a server in a restaurant, and I would float drinks. Um, it's just a way to, to make a couple extra bucks a table. Um, I was running around with a married woman. Um, she was pregnant with my baby, and um, she was separated, but she was still married. She was drinking every day while pregnant. Um, I was gambling every Friday for 14 to 16 hours in a row with other people in recovery. Um, and um, I was sponsoring four or five guys in AA. I was taking meetings into prison. Um, uh, I was going to at least two meetings a day. And I was dead on the inside. I was absolutely dead. And um, we lost that child to fetal alcohol uh, syndrome. 
and it was God's fault. I was angry. I stopped praying. And within three weeks, I started smoking pot. And I continued going to meetings for five months, um, but I stayed high the entire time. And nobody knew. This was my secret. And um, eventually the obsession to drink returned. And I'm so grateful for that relapse. Because what happened is I, I was humbled. Alcoholism kicked my ass. Um, during that time of extreme drunkenness, uh, the, the first day drinking, it was as if I had not stopped. It was three years and 11 months I went without a drink. And it was as if I had not stopped drinking for that time. My tolerance for alcohol um, had progressed to, um, you know, my first night was like an $80 bar tab. And then the after party of like, you know, downing, you know, eight, eight or 10 beers with friends. And, um, and I was drinking and driving, um, you know, friends would have to like cut me off or drive me home, or I would just take my keys and drive myself. And, um, I was pulled over three times in the last two weeks of drinking. And, um, each time for some reason, the first time, um, was Christmas night. And, um, I was given, I actually gave, <laughs> I gave the police officer, my license, registration, and a get-out-of-jail-free Monopoly card. <laughs> and it worked. And um, he didn't give me a breathalyzer. He gave me a field sobriety test, and he let me go. Because I was honest with him about, you know, I had had, like, five beers in a Xanax or something. Um, but he let me go. And, um, and then another time... Um, there was, there was a SWAT team on the loose for somebody that robbed a, a gas station or something. And uh, they didn't want to deal with booking me and putting me in jail. Um, so they let me phone a friend. And uh, the last time was my last night drinking. Um, my sister broke up uh, this house party. And, um, and she, told, she told the police that we were all going to this Sheets gas station. And... Um, as soon as I got there and took the keys out of the ignition, they all rolled up on us. And um, there's something inside of me that, that said, um, you're going to die. I, I knew that if, if I continued drinking, um, jails, institutions, and death was very near. So I phoned um, somebody in the rooms, and um, I, was still, um, I was still hungover and, and drunk, and I went to a meeting. And, um, and I was just, um, I was surrounded by, um, by love. There's people in that, that this was, um, I got my desire chip at this treatment center called the healing place, which is, you know, 150 homeless men. And they take them through Joe McHugh's, um, recovery dynamics. And it's a nine month treatment program. Um, and it's free, um. But there was a speaker meeting there, and, and I went there, and one of my sponsees was speaking, and, um, and I got a desire chip, and, and I had the delirium tremens, but um, I just remember so many people came over and just cried with me and loved me, and um, my sponsor was there to hold my hand through that process, and um, Call of Duty got me through my first three days sober, you know? Um, just hanging out with my sponsor and his friends. Um, going to three meetings a day. Um, 
go into a 10 p.m. meeting and then go into coffee afterwards. Um, and I only had an hour and a half a week with my sponsor, and he was completely unavailable the rest of the time. Uh, so I was forced to throw myself into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so my home group uh, was this 10 p.m. meeting, and, and um, it was me and this guy, Paige. And um, nobody else really wanted to do anything, so we set up the coffee, did the treasure, did the GSR, the intergroup, just him and I. And um, that got me through my first two years sober um, was that meeting, setting up that 10 p.m. meeting. And um, just the absolute unconditional love for the new alcoholic that would come in. We would have homeless people come in. People would relapse. A famous guy got sober in our home group. Um, it was a great place. Uh, it was very similar, uh, I'll say, to like the Westlake 1030. Um, a lot of people come in and out. A lot of people relapse. Um, but there's a core group of people that stay sober and, and work with others. Um, 2010, uh, there's the International AA Convention in San Antonio, and it absolutely changed my life. Um, I drove, uh, funny story with this, um, I got my oil changed at Jiffy Lube, and they forgot to put the oil filter back on my car. Um, so I got a free engine out of it, um, but it was two weeks before that could happen, so they gave me a rental car with unlimited miles. And that's the only reason that I was able to make it to the 2010 World Convention, is that I didn't have to rent a car, and, um, you know, uh, so that was a blessing. So I picked up my friend in Louisville, and we went, and it was an absolute blast. Um, Icky Pie got the Westin Hotel, and it was 70,000 alcoholics and, and a lot of young people, and um, I, there's got to be 100 people that I'm still in contact with on a yearly basis, either through social media or phone calls or text messages um, that I met at that conference. Um, actually met some people that started Straight Pepper Diet here in Austin, um, and that kind of influenced me to want to move to Austin. I moved to Austin the next year. Um, but just meeting alcoholics outside of Virginia, um, finding people that were doing the deal, that were staying sober, um, is where the magic in AA begins for me. Because if you just stay in one meeting and that's all you know of Alcoholics Anonymous, in my opinion, you're missing out. Because this is a worldwide fellowship. Um, I think the last estimated was four million alcoholics worldwide have, have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body um, using the same solution that the first 100 did. And, um, and that's where I go and I hear the message. And I, that's where I go and I get... Um, uh, get lit on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, there's a conference I've gone to the last eight years in Arkansas. Um, it's called Arkipa. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. It's a 500-person camp out. Um, they do a sober rave, and they'll do Mardi Gras, and it's on a mountaintop outside of Little Rock, and um, it's amazing. And um, it, it's something that I've, I've, I've made it a point to attend um, every year and um, going there um, uh, I'll take a step back um, I had an AA um, relationship that, um, that took off from Ikipa. we met at San Antonio World and then we went to Ikipa, New York a month later and we saw each other again and then 
We went to Cirque Pond, Louisville a month after that. And we saw each other again and we stayed Facebook friends for a year. And then we saw each other again in San Francisco and um, we spent the whole weekend together and just smoked cigars and fellowshiped. Um, and during that time, everything that she had burned up in the Bastrop fire. And, um, and I watched her just kind of like deal with that with Grace um, at this AA conference. Um, and I just, uh, I wanted to move to Austin and it was a good reason. And, and it was uh, Boy Meets Girl on AA campus and love follows at first sight. And I, um, I sold everything that I had in Virginia and I moved to Texas a month later. And, um, and then she quit her job and we, we took off to travel around the country going to AA conferences. Um, and uh, four months later, we found out she was pregnant with our first child. And um, during that time, it was, um, it's, it's important that I tell this story because um, I applied the steps in this relationship and um, it was in alignment with both of our four-step sex ideals. And if you're working on a four-step, um, it was literally two weeks after we, I wrote an ideal and she wrote an ideal and we kind of mirrored each other and um, it was flow. Um, I've heard of other people in AA that had a very similar experience, um, but this was mine and uh, we just kind of went after it and um, we married kind of out of pressure a year after that. And um, I, I got, as soon as we found out she was pregnant, I got a job in Austin. And um, you know, for the next three years, it, it moved, moved us to um, Tulsa, Amarillo, um, San Diego, um, and back to Austin. And um, we met people all along the way. Alcoholics Anonymous was always there. Um, we had our second child in Oklahoma, and uh, they're almost five and seven now. And um, that's probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me was the birth of my kids. Because what it did is it, is it took this I, self, and me, this narcissistic, selfish, self-centered alcoholic, and it made two other people more important in the universe than me. Um, through that process, um, I rested on my laurels. Um, I didn't put Alcoholics Anonymous first. I didn't put my relationship first. Um, I chased money. I chased um, addictions, gambling addiction, um, you know, sex and love addiction, and um, I lost that marriage. Um, and that was a very painful process. Um, it was very easy for her. She just packed up and left with the kids. And, and for me, it was a very lonely place. Um, through that experience, um, I attempted suicide and, um, and God was there. Um, the shotgun that I put in my mouth misfired. And immediately after that, my sponsor called me on the phone and my sponsor never calls me. Like I can tell you in seven years, my sponsor has probably only called me five times. Um, but he called me this time and um, I had left him a voicemail six or seven hours prior but he called me um, and um, he told me you know come to the men's meeting in Lakeway tomorrow 
um, you know, let her go. Don't stop her. And uh, let's work on loving yourself. And um, he saved my life. Um, she left. And um, I, got to, I got to work on Alcoholics Anonymous again. Um, it took me about three months um, to really jump in with both feet. Um, but Westlake Group uh, really uh, saved my ass. Um, I went to the Westlake 1030 just about every night. Uh, I started sponsoring men again. I started doing H&I commitments. And um, my life didn't get better, but I felt better, right? I felt like I was um, okay, like everything was going to be all right. And the, the divorce came and it went. We did it without lawyers. We did it as peaceably as possible. And, um, and the men that I sponsored, none of them stayed sober. Um, and then new ones would come along. Um, and then eventually um, I looked back and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I, I went through a divorce and didn't think about drinking. Um, nowhere through that process did I think about drinking. Um, I thought um, a lot of other things, but I didn't think about drinking. Um, and I worked through the steps thoroughly. Um, and I want to say in January, I had another spiritual awakening, and it was a really powerful one. Um, I went back through uh, the fourth and fifth step really thoroughly out of the 12 and 12. Um, and my sponsor encouraged me to go to a quiet place and really spend an hour. And, um, and I had just finished reading, rereading the four agreements. Um, and I prayed, I prayed that prayer of forgiveness at the end of it. Um, and I had this like Bill Wilson mountaintop spiritual experience and it lasted for about a day or two. And I just felt like I was connected to everyone and everything. Like I was no better than everyone. Like I was just this blade of grass, but I was significant. Um, and I was important. Um, and that's a really important experience because it, it really catapulted me back into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, this year has been kind of a an under-earning year for me, to say the least. I, um, <laughs> um, I have this thing called people-pleasing. And um, <laughs> through the divorce, I agreed to pay $800 more than what the state required me to pay. And um, this job that I was offered fell through. So for 10 months, um, I've been required to pay... Um, you know, three quarters of the money that I was making. Um, and then I didn't draw a single paycheck for three months. And my sponsor demanded that I get back to work in the restaurant industry just to get cash. And um, it's the best thing I ever did because it, it, it builds self-esteem of just doing any work and getting paid for it rather than not getting paid and just being depressed. Um, and um, that's where I'm at today. Um, I'm in a place of neutrality, right? I feel like um, there's a bright future ahead of me. Um, one thing that I'll tell you is that if you've got self-hate towards things that you've done in your past or opportunities that you've missed or um, the book says we go out and drink and pull the whole structure uh, down on our head by a senseless series of sprees and if you've lost things, relationships, um, jobs, 
houses, cars. Um, getting sober, you can recreate your life. It says that, I think, um, two times in the first step in the big book. It talks about recreating their life. And, um, and that's what I feel like I can do today. Um, you know, it's important to not drink um, to experience sobriety. But not drinking is not, it's not sufficient. Um, the work for me began when I started going after emotional sobriety. Um, I just kind of want to quote Bill Wilson a little bit on emotional sobriety. Um, if you ever want to, if you just Google Bill W. Emotional Sobriety, there's an article he wrote in the 1950s in the grapevine. Um, and then later it was expanded upon in the book, Language of the Heart. Um, but he talks about where um, his idolatry, his faulty dependencies upon um, money, property, prestige, upon people um, to give him self-esteem um, caused him to be depressed. And he was, he was trying to apply the prayer of St. Francis in his life and work in self-sacrifice with others, and his depression just grew. He was doing 12-step work, and it was not getting better. Um, the more he would try, the worse he felt. And um, he went back and did an inventory, and he realized all of the faulty dependencies that he had, his demands that he had on other people, to give him what only God could give him. And um, that's what I've, I've, been, um, I've been on this quest over, I'll say the last six months, um, to face and be rid of the things within myself um, that separate me from God and my fellow man. And those are defects of character. Those are aspects of me um, that cause harm. And I can't change them on my own power. And they won't go away without my cooperation. It's a, double, it, it's, it, it's a really hard concept, and it's taking me years. But what I've found is that when, when I individually ask for God to remove them, when I ask for the willingness, um, I'm given opportunities to exercise humility, to exercise um, you know, thriftiness, to exercise you know, patience and love. And I can either um, fall short or I can be successful. And when I do a nightly review, that's where I get to pat myself on the back. Um, and I get to learn from it. Um, and it's usually after the fact. And I, and I believe my higher power works anonymously in my life. I, I believe there's coincidences and circumstances that are out of my control where only I know that that's God. Um, and that helps me see that path. Um, and the more uh, I move towards esteemable actions, the better I feel. Um, and that's what I want today. That's emotional sobriety for me is, um, is unconditional love for myself and others. That's my goal, and maybe one day I'll achieve it. Um, I fall short often. Um, but one thing that I can tell you is that um, life sober is a hell of a lot better um, than it is, you know, chasing, getting, getting high or drunk. Um, I was incapable um, of dealing with my thoughts, feelings, emotions. And uh, once I started getting honest, then I was given the tools. Um, it's okay to cry. There's, there's, um, 
there's this something inside of me that just wants to be understood. And for me to do that, I have to understand, um, which opens up my heart and it, and it connects me to you. Um, when I'm stuck in self, I just find um, the inability to relate to you um, because it's all about me. But when I let go of that, I can listen and I can actually relate. Um, and that's where I found the, the greatest peace uh, in these rooms. Um, I hope that I've given you guys some hope. Um, there's, a, there's a guy named Joe Dabney who passed away. Um, he was 50 years sober. Um, he used to always start his share with, today is the first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you that, that um, there's hope. You can do this. Um, because I did it. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.